The Near Futurist Podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hi, this is Guy Clapperton, Senior Technology Journalist. I've been following and commenting on technology for the last 30 years or so, and I've seen a lot of forecasts that look at the way we live and work, predicting how they're going to be in the next 25 or 30 years. Some of these people are excellent, but this programme is going to be dedicated to how we live right now, how we can adapt, and what's likely to be happening, say, five years out. Payments are going to be a big area of change. Some of us are <coughs> mature enough to remember early use of credit cards about, say, 40 years ago, becoming popular a few years later. So I went for a coffee with Adrian Cannon. He's a consultant in the cards and mobile payments sector, whose company is called Whitstock. He's worked with all the major European banks and card providers in the last 20 years. So the first thing I wanted to know was, why does the way we pay for things have to change at all? There are a number of drivers, uh, some of which are long-standing and will always be the case. They're, they're really about driving efficiency in the payment system. Um, and bear in mind that unless payments work well, they actually act as a break on the economy. So the ability to transact reliably, safely, everywhere you want to is really important in terms of driving the economy forward. So countries with good payment systems, generally speaking, have higher levels of growth and achieve uh, a more sustainable level of growth. And you, you see this in African countries that have adopted payment methods, electronic payment methods, using the mobile phone. It actually drives GDP for them. So, so there is an efficiency issue. There's also an issue of reach. I mean, the payment methods we're using today, card-based technologies, are arguably 60 years old. And they've been, you know, Heath Robinson-like, they've had bits bolted onto them to cope with e-commerce, with mobile payments, with vending machines, with contactless payments. But it's becoming quite a, a complex structure that very few people really understand. And the complexity is not just the technology, it's the rules, both the rules of the card schemes, but also the regulators who are forever dabbling with the best in, uh, you know, they, they have our interests at heart. They don't often get it exactly right and they often create as many problems as they solve. So when you try and extend those payment services into new areas of life, for example, the Internet of Things, you suddenly discover that the card payment in industry model just will not work in that space. And we've tortured it to deliver all sorts of payment opportunities in all sorts of fun places. Contactless being the latest, you know, uh, in a taxi this morning, contactless payment. Uh, that's, that's great, that's fantastic. But we're at the limits of, of what that can do now. Now, that's interesting. I, I would argue we're not at the limits of what that can do, because if you go to America, uh, it's uh, contactless is not where it is in the UK, certainly, or Europe. They're not so fond of it. And you were talking about plastic and credit cards. Well, you didn't specifically mention credit cards, but it's certainly an issue. Uh, if you go to, say, Germany, it's true that the majority of merchants will uh, support credit cards, but it's a narrow majority. It's in the 60%, rather than in the, say, 80s and 90s that it is in the US, uh, late 80s, uh, Europe, most of Europe. So I'm just wondering, you say we're at the limits of what these things can achieve. Wouldn't it be a good idea if in the near future we try to do something, I'm not quite sure what, uh, to unify, to harmonize the way these things are. So if I want to start trading in Germany, not only do I have to learn new technology, not only do I have to learn new regulations, I'm also faced with a culture where credit cards are not quite so popular. 
Yes, and, and that harmonisation has long been sought. I mean, certainly going back uh, 12 years, um, I was part of a company that thought it was going to become a pan-European merchant acquirer, doing the same thing for merchants throughout Europe. And very, very quickly it was Im proved impossible for those reasons, for, for regulatory reasons, for technical reasons, but you're right to point to cultural reasons. We all have, as nations, a, a national character for the way we engage with payment. And that's not just whether we've borrowed the money that we're spending in a credit card or whether we're spending what we already have with a debit card. It's actually the way we manage our, our wealth and the degree of knowledge we need around a transaction before we're willing to transact. Um, and of course there are, amazingly enough, national differences in our attitude to cash and, and the usefulness of cash for not appearing on anybody's radar. So you see in different countries cash being more or less prevalent. But for just that reason, I'm afraid, it is just down to national characteristics. Um, so there are a lot of factors that come together that, that, that drive change in payments. But the point I'm making, I suppose, is, is that if we want to keep moving forward into the future, um, the Internet of Things, into the world where, for example, um, we start paying for things on the internet using our mobile phone which have very very small values today's payment systems are not designed to deliver that service and i was thinking the other day you know when you when you read about the rise of of the um the e-commerce giants and the freemium model as the basis of, of their great breakthrough into the world the idea being that you give away for free what you're doing um, whether it's a, a facebook account or a twitter account you give that away for free and you hope over time to monetize a small subset of the users who use that service for free I was thinking, I wonder if actually that was just making the, the best of a bad situation. There has well, been no way. Well, I'm hoping you for the podcast, I'll be honest with you. So. Well, it would be great if it works for the podcast. But maybe, maybe the people who were starting off in that world realised there's no way they could charge a thousandth of a, a cent for a, a piece of information because there was just no payment system that would support that. The costs of all of the existing payment systems would just not work in that model. So maybe we've ended up with where they've ended up, the big data model, selling our data, breaking our privacy and, and trying to monetize that because they didn't have a payment system that would support the alternative, which would have been, yes, I, I will uh, charge you a thousandth of a cent every time you look at Facebook. And by the way, I'll pay you a thousandth of a cent every time I sell your data. Because the payment, mess the payment systems didn't exist. They don't exist today to do it. There are technologies that would allow it. But we have got the problem of the innovator's dilemma. The card schemes are hugely invested in their infrastructure. Uh, their ex-members now, um, users of the service, the banks, have also spent fortunes having a position in that infrastructure. Merchants have been made to invest in terminals and other devices. They're not going to give up on that investment. And so when you try and change the payments industry for the benefit of, it doesn't matter who it's for the benefit of, whether it's society or businesses or consumers, you meet this legacy drag effect. No one wants to let go of the past. That's their 
That's their hold on market share. They're not going to let go. Okay, so um, when we talk about the future of payments, a lot of the, our listeners, I'm sure, will be thinking about things like cryptocurrency, which is actually starting to be picked up by certain uh, merchants, but it's a tiny, tiny thing and perceived as very high risk. I'm wondering, uh, whether is that part of the uh, uh, the immediate future, do you think, or are we uh, going to do uh, more in harmonization? What, what are you working on at the moment? What, where do you see the market going? Well, we are, we are involved in a number of projects that involve cryptocurrencies as, a, as an ex, a, a means of exchanging value. Today's existing, today's existing payment services could um, communicate those values quite easily between two parties. It doesn't matter what the exchange is. You could, you know, you could use if, if your bank decided to issue uh, Bitcoin as currency, and you were willing to accept that, you could move Bitcoin as a value through today's system. The challenge, of course, is nobody regulates it. The value goes up and down like a yo-yo. So you may think you've just spent two pounds thirty on a cup of coffee, to discover by the time the transaction gets to your account that you've spent twenty pounds on it, because the shift in the underlying value of the cryptocurrency. What I think is really interesting about crypto and likely to happen in the next five years is that national banks will start to, central banks will start to look to cryptocurrencies as a proper digital representation of currency within the payment system. So crypto sterling has got to be a possibility. And we've seen a number of countries beginning to make moves in that direction. Which ones? Um, I think Singapore, Canada, there's a number of countries. I'd have to check the list, but I think those, those come to mind. Because what cryptocurrencies really allow you to do is fully leverage the internet as part of the payments infrastructure. And at the moment, payments are a curiosity. Payments have really not been touched by the internet. The internet has profoundly affected retail, uh, travel, um, all sorts of industries have been disrupted or, or massively improved by the internet. Whereas payments has managed to avoid that impact altogether. They, they argue, perhaps reasonably, that they, they cannot rely on the open internet for the movement of transactions because it's not secure. And yet there are plenty of secure transactions that move through the internet quite happily. It's more, I think, because there's a massive communications industry that, that gets paid a lot of money to move secure transactions around the payments industry. The internet could radically alter payments, and, and I think that could be the biggest change in the next five years. Instead of routing transactions through very proprietary, very relatively expensive communications networks, we'll see the internet being used as a means of taking a transaction from a point of sale directly to my bank, where my bank will directly say, yes, that's okay, that person's good for the money. And critically, there will be a mechanism for directly sending that value back to the merchant. I think a lot of listeners perhaps who aren't in the uh, transactions industry will be thinking, uh, surely that's what happens already, uh, because uh, that's all that's visible to you. So could you first explain what does happen at the moment uh, and why this is an improvement? And second, uh, what impact this is going to make on people's daily lives, you know, how you see us changing as a result of what's yeah, so the current system works on on four parties um, who work together to deliver 
an amazing payment service on a global basis. I'm old enough to remember my first trip abroad on business. And I had to go to the chief cashier and I was handed an envelope of... Um, I was handed an envelope of French francs and told to account for them to the Santine when I got back, which I did. Um, very clumsy, very difficult. Now I can travel almost anywhere in the world and I can present this bit of plastic that the merchant has no idea who I am, doesn't have to care. They know they're going to get paid. So in this model, the merchant has a contract with a merchant acquirer and they're responsible for providing the technical infrastructure that allows the transaction to be captured. The transaction is an instruction from the cardholder to their bank to pay that merchant an amount of money. Um, the acquirer routes that transaction to the card scheme. The card scheme works out which bank it belongs to based on the 16-digit number on the card. That transaction is then sent to the issuer who says, yes, this is a valid transaction, this was my customer, I agree to pay. They can, of course, dispute the transaction, and many do. They then net settle the amount of money needed um, with the card scheme, and the card scheme sends it to the merchant acquirer, who sends it, often three or four days later, to the merchant. So, many, many parties involved. That's the simplest version of the model. There are other versions where there are other intermediaries working in that chain, all of whom adding cost, arguably some adding value, not necessarily all of them. Yeah, I was going to say that. I, I can see uh, you almost answered the second part of that question because the eliminating a lot of that kerfuffle. It's going to improve stock control, it's going to improve people having to go for credit to uh, replenish their stocks, things like that, if they get their money immediately. Yes. Uh, from the point of view. And I'm sure there's other benefits as well. But if you've also described, perhaps, an awful lot of people with a vested interest in keeping this system going. Um, yes. I'm just wondering where, you know, whether there's going to be internal resistance to changing this, because there's going to be a heck of a lot of, uh, you know, as you cut this out, you're cutting people out, and they're making an awful lot of money out of it at the moment. Yes, they are, and, and, and it is the curse of all innovative industries that eventually they become, they become wedded to the past, they become wedded to that investment. The card schemes do compete aggressively against each other, so they're constantly trying to find ways of changing the game. They, they have um, a lot of issues to address in order to change things. It's not easy, it takes time. But one of the, one of the um, I think, most powerful things about this country, the UK, is that the UK has been very, very good at finding ways of changing these structures. Um, it was the first to market with faster payments, um, uh, on, on a, a national level, an amazing achievement, um, and I had the privilege to run it for a short while as interim MD, and and that demonstrates that it is possible to bring together the stakeholders and, and create change, um, but it is incredibly difficult. What we have to be careful of is that the changes that, that come to us in any country are often not designed here for this society. They are, to your earlier point, trying to create a, a, an homogenous service across the world. And the card schemes would far prefer that the whole world did the same thing, because it would be a downside easier for them. When they do that, of course, they butt up against cultural issues, they butt up against regulatory issues. They, they, they are coming head to head with central bank concerns that card schemes are 
handling vast amounts of, of value every day, they, they are of national interest. So there's a lot of reasons why change is difficult. But if we did achieve a world where, and, and I'm aware of, of the, the card schemes and regulators and others in Europe, uh, trying to move to a world where we do have instant settlement of value on the merchant. Um, and I think that you're right that that does create benefits for the merchant. It means that they know where they stand financially. So the next day when they, or that day when they're ordering their stock, Perhaps they can buy more stock and therefore sell more tomorrow because they have the cash. They can also pay their staff without borrowing, potentially. So there's lots of benefits to the merchant. But for the consumer, and I think this is the big win, we need to get to a world of real-time wealth management. And whilst many consumers understand when they look at their statement that there might be some transactions coming through later that they weren't aware of. Many don't understand that. Mm. And the banks are trying very hard to tell us what's coming. You know, they say, and here's some pending transactions. But if a merchant, for example, didn't leave their terminal plugged in that night and that transaction doesn't go through the system, that customer, that cardholder is sitting there in ignorance of that impending debt. Yeah. So there's a real opportunity here to, to make wealth management real time. And obviously the smartphone is a great vehicle for doing that. It has all of the attributes you need. And I think the smartphone linked with existing card payment structures, but working real time, will be something we see within the five-year time frame. That'll change the game for a lot of people um, and do a lot of small merchants a lot of good. Final uh, issue is uh, the um, the law of unintended consequences, if you like. And when I was uh, a child, we were probably both children at the time. Uh, credit cards were either introduced or they became uh, much more important. I think there was a big boom in the 80s. They've been around since the 70s, as far as I'm aware. Probably around in some form before then as well. Unintended consequence. 40 years later, we'd all—not all of us, perhaps—but an awful lot of people have spent an awful lot of money they didn't actually have. And uh, the, that may have been the root of part of the root of the financial crisis. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated. Oh, I know it's a lot more complicated than that. But essentially, there had been warnings before that we were all overstretching ourselves. We were spending much more money than we had because credit was too easy. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, how do we avoid the next payment revolution, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's this transparency that you're talking about? How do we avoid that um, leading us into areas we hadn't looked for? Yeah, I think I think it's it's hard to, in my mind, conflate the the access to easy credit with the card payment industry. Uh, in in other words, I think it was the freedom of gaining credit that was the underlying problem. It is true that card payment made it easier to spend money. You didn't have to carry lots of cash, and you didn't have to write out checks, so it became easier to spend. But the underlying problem was the access to credit, and I think. Whatever happens in the payments world, it can only it can only facilitate payments where the money exists to spend. And if if lenders are not constrained by central banks, and you know that is the central bank's job is to sit and watch the money supply, make sure that credit's not getting out of control, and and a bank will lend if it's allowed to. I mean that's the job, that's the business they're in, so they're not going to hold back. Um, subject to their own risk criteria. If the central bank just walks off the stage and says, have a free-for-all, guys, and really that's partly what happened as we 
we went through that period of boom um, where everyone thought that it was never going to... Gordon Brown famously said it was an end to boom and bust. We were just going to boom. He, he always, did, spending, he always spending. denies saying that just before they played the yes. football and saying precisely yes, that. Well, he started off saying Tory boom and bust. Um, there are definitely clips of him saying boom and bust. Yeah. Whether he intended it as an abbreviation, I have no idea. Well, bless him, it's, uh, it's a horrible thing being having everything you ever said revisited on a recording. But um, I think the, the challenge... The challenge is for central banks to be much closer to the payments industry so that they understand the changes in human behaviour that payment innovation creates. They haven't understood it in the past, they haven't worried about it to my mind. Um, for a central bank it doesn't seem to be something that troubles them, it should. They should be looking at any payments innovation and asking themselves, does this make it easier to blow the line of credit that you've been given. Is it painless to do so? I'll be interested to see if contactless, albeit you're only allowed to spend £30 a time, is it actually driving up expenditure? Because all of a sudden, and it's a general trend in the payments industry, the act of paying is disappearing. Mm. And you talk to people and say, well, they've just been into a shop and they've just used their credit card or their debit card, and you say, how much was it that you just bought? Um, uh, ooh, um, oh, it was about 20 quid. It was 26. Oh, really? Right, okay. So we're, we're losing quite deliberately. This payment is being engineered out of the shopping experience because it's the painful bit. It's the bit where you hesitate and you don't blow your money. So as payments disappear from that shopping process, I think central banks need to be much more alive to the change in human behaviour that, that is created. Have you come across the Amazon Go model, mm. uh, which is, uh, just in case people don't know, uh, it's where your, your, your card is detected through NFC or whatever, or your phone is detected through Bluetooth or some technology like that. Uh, so as you walk out of a store, your purchase uh, is uh, paid for uh, without you actually having to touch anything. It's, uh, so so uh, that is I think precisely what you're talking about. You walk out, you pay. But you don't feel as if you pay. You know, you're, 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 we're not required to um, uh, to register that. I think this has been really interesting. I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, some well. of the listeners may well want to uh, find out more about you, about what you do. Could you tell us about your website and uh, you know where they can get in touch? So, um, if they care to visit um, uh, www.witstock.com. And, uh, so that's W-I-T rather than W-H-I-T, isn't it? It's W-I-T-S-T-O-C-K. That's couldn't afford the H. And um, uh, they will find there what we do, who we are, and some of the people we've helped. And they're very welcome to get in touch through the website. There's, there's all sorts of ways of doing that. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It's Thank welcome. you, guys. Thank you. Pleasure. to Mark Casey and Deus PR for arranging that interview and of course to the waiter for the mad laugh when he realised he was bringing coffee while we were recording. In future programmes I'll be talking to people about women in technology, automation and robotics, the psychology of working with so many machines and a great deal more. I'd welcome ideas, pitches and above all feedback on the show. Is it too long, too short, too much of me perhaps? please do let me know at guy at clapperton.co.uk, two Ps. If you liked it enough to want to use me as a speaker at your event, please contact my assistant, Lindsay, Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, 
at clapperton.co.uk and she'll be pleased to help. Many thanks for listening. See you in a fortnight. Thank you.